Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, here on Reality Radio 101. In this radio show and podcast, we learn about fruit trees, permaculture, arboriculture, and so much more. So if you love trees, and especially fruit trees, or if you're interested in living a more sustainable life, then this is the place for you. I'm your host, Susan Poisner of the Fruit Tree Care Training website, OrchardPeople.com. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner. To contact Susan live right now, send her an email in studio101 at gmail.com. And now, right to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. If you're growing fruit trees, you probably put some thought into what to feed them. Well-nourished trees are healthier, and they also direct lots of those nutrients into the growing fruit. That's why correctly fertilized fruit trees produce a better quality harvest. But what about irrigation? Some growers don't think much about it, and they only water their fruit trees when the trees look stressed. Others may water too frequently, hoping to ensure that the fruit tree's roots never dry out. But here's the problem. If your tree gets too little water, it can become dehydrated and weak. And if your tree gets too much water, well, it can get root rot and fungal diseases. So the question is, how do you get it right? So irrigation is the topic of today's show. And my guest today is Robert Corrick, author of Roots Demystified, Changing Your Gardening Habits to Help Roots Thrive. And Robert has also written several other books, including Greater Garden Yields with Drip Irrigation and Sustainable Food Gardens. Now, before we dig in, I would love to hear from you. How do you irrigate your fruit trees? What are your questions about irrigation? Email us during the live show with a question, a comment, or even just to say hi, and we'll enter you into today's listener contest. The prize is PDF copies of several of Robert's books, including Roots Roots Demystified and Greater Garden Yields with Drip Irrigation. And the total value of these PDFs is $20. So to enter the contest, just send your email to instudio101 at gmail.com. That's instudio101 at gmail.com. And remember to include your first name and where you're writing from. We look forward to hearing from you. So now let's dig into today's topic. And here with me, I have Robert. Welcome to the show. Hi, Susan. So lovely to have you here today. And I know you are a person who has thought deeply about irrigation. (laughs) Why is it that it's, when did it start to become very important to you as a gardener? Well, I started gardening in 74. uh, And uh, sure enough, come 75, the drought began. And so there were no drip systems in 75, but I hobbled together a system that used less water uh, using some off-the-shelf hardware from the greenhouse industry. Uh, 
but it was uh, quite a few years before you could buy drip irrigation hardware as we're used to it now. So you were sort of an early tinkerer in figuring out how to get your plants hydrated. And let's clarify, you live in California, um, yes. so it's a pretty hot, dry climate, right? Yes. So it used to be uh, April through April, maybe rains, and then start up again in September, October. Now it's more like no rains after March, uh, and it stays dry into November. Uh, so we have... Uh, dry season so in the 75 i was putting in gray water systems as well as the low volume so-called drip systems uh, and the, my, none of my clients had ever mulched their garden it was considered tacky um, so i started mulching my their gardens and uh, they noticed that the weeds were down so everybody went mulched then Interesting. Wow. So you were a pioneer in various ways because we know mulch helps to keep the moisture in the soil yep. and gray water is fantastic. If you're getting, you know, rainwater or water that's been used for some other purpose that can be uh, used in a garden, that's great. Um, yep. Now, again, coming from California, you live in a dry climate. Do you think, and I know your garden books are for everybody, if, if for those of us who don't live in a dry climate, can we just let our fruit trees do what they do and not worry about irrigation? You can. It depends upon the frequency of the rain and how much you want to improve growth and yields. Uh, what I say, there's isn't a lot of data on it, but I would say if you're going periodically with a four-week drought, no rain whatsoever, then drip turned on during that period it'll just keep things hustling along and looking great and so you would maintain consistent growth um, but if it's less than four weeks like in Missouri a drought was two weeks uh, where I grew up and um, so then you know you can pretty much ignore drip irrigation for trees because they if you've done it right they have an extensive root system and they can gather the moisture themselves. Gotcha. Now, another uh, one of your books is called Greater Garden Yields with Drip Irrigation. Now, is there scientific evidence that actually suggests that by watering your trees and plants correctly, you can actually get better harvests? Yes. The book focuses on vegetables because uh, there's a bigger market, so to speak, for vegetable growers. But it does apply to fruit trees. But basically, I have dozens of studies done by universities in the in the book that show that starting out with a drip you can at least get 20 percent greater yields overall there was a woman in india doing chilies and she used 38 percent less water but got 48 percent more chilies interesting so it sounds like that this is something that hopefully over the years more and more research will be done on it especially with fruit trees um, we have an email here from Bob, another Bob. Um, hello, Susan and Robert. Happy New Year. All right. The first and most important question for you is the premise of irrigation for fruit trees. How much? Thanks. Oh, I I'm listening from Hoboken, New Jersey. So Bob wants a concrete, tell us how much to water our fruit trees. How much water do they need? Is there an answer to that question? 
enough and not too much. <laughs> Basically, people say, oh, I want to add five gallons a week. Well, that in our area, that's what a lot of people do when they pair, plant a bare root tree. But there's a thing called evapotranspiration rate, and that measures the losses of, of moisture from evaporation of the soil and transpiration of the foliage. And it's weather dependent. And once you have the ET rate, the evapotranspiration rate, you'll know exactly how many gallons of water lost. And you can then replace it on a daily basis if you want to keep things just moving along very nicely. So like where I live, come June, it's based what's called as inches per month. Uh, in June, basically, my garden needs uh, 14 gallons of water per 100 square feet. So that in many cases, that means you're leaving the drip system on for as much as 15 minutes on a daily basis to keep the losses replaced. So usually that's uh, a lot more than what people are doing. So when you talk about this, you know, this rate of evaporation, transpiration, people are going to be very stressed. It's like, how do I know what my soil is retaining um, is this, and I noticed in one of your books, you have a way of calculating this. Is, can this be calculated by anybody or is it more inviting an expert in to check your soil? Oh, well, it helps to know what soil is like so you can figure out where to put, put irrigation. But uh, as far as the ET rate, evapotranspiration, uh, if you do a Google search for your town, state, evapotranspiration rate, you can find, if you're careful looking through, you can find it. So I did one for Seattle because I'm going to be talking there. And I found it uh, for every month uh, for about 30 cities throughout Washington State. But what you do is you go to a local uh, newsroom, maybe go to Master Gardeners, maybe go to the fire department, maybe. It's really hard to find initially but the master gardener should have what i say is that if your master gardener can't tell you what the et rate is fire them they don't deserve <laughs> they don't deserve to be doing what they're doing uh good advice okay we have an email now from charlie uh charlie says hi no questions here right now but please enter me into the contest today i live in thompson manitoba happy new year <laughs> okay so let's talk about where that water goes. Let's talk about root roots. And one of the things that I really was impressed with about you when I first learned about you is that you have written entire books on roots because roots are the central part of the plant, the most important place because they take in the water and nutrients. So can you tell us a little bit about the role of roots and how they differ from tree to tree and from plant to plant? Well, basically, roots grow much further from the trunk on a tree than most people realize. Uh, in a heavy soil, uh, they might grow half again further than the drip line of the tree, the foliage. In a sandy soil, three, five, six, seven times wider uh, than the drip line of the tree. Uh, so where are people putting their, their mulch and their water uh, next to the trunk and that's the worst place to put it as a tree matures and it confines i call it water bondage if you just keep watering fertilizing a foot away from the trunk roots will stay there and they won't explore a large volume of soil to, to deal with uh, 
periodic droughts and that sort of thing. That's so, you know, spot on because I get wound up. I, I know that a lot of arborists, when they walk around and they see how people have mulched their trees and there's this little tiny circle just around the trunk and then they plant their hostas or, you know, whatever. <laughs> and you get so wound up, you want to tell them off and say, listen, think about the tree. It's got these roots. They're trying to reach out. They need to stabilize the tree. They need to find food. So I do get a little wound up about that, if in case you've noticed. <laughs> um but okay, so let's talk about different types of fruit trees. Now, I know you have some illustrations uh, of, of tree roots that you put in your book. So let's talk first about plum trees. What might a plum tree's roots look like? Well, uh, there was a study done in Hungary. There's this guy, all he did was study roots of fruit trees his entire life. And he has a book out, extremely rare, but I have a copy of it. And um, he studied all kinds of fruit trees, and plum trees had something like 80% or more of their root system in the top three feet, and proportionally more in the top foot than the second foot or third foot. There were occasional roots, they call them sinker roots, that went straight down from the horizontal roots uh, two, three, four feet, but a huge percentage of the root system is shallow and horizontal and wide. I uh, call them laterals. Okay, so there's our plum tree. Now, how might an apple tree look different, at least according to what he discovered? Well, it, it depends upon the soil and the rootstock, but uh, basically they're quite similar. The guidelines for depth and width pretty much apply to most fruit trees. Uh, the difference being that some trees have tap roots that help stabilize a tree and give it a little bit extra advantage to water and nutrients. But less than 5% of all trees have a taproot. So it's a common myth when people draw a tree, they draw a circle for the tree, they draw a circle for the roots, and then they put a taproot straight down. Well, that's not the case. Mostly it's nut trees, oak trees, and pine trees that can have taproots. So something like a huge redwood tree in California doesn't have a taproot. It might have roots down to 15 feet, but they're they're horizontal mostly. And as they get further out, they get more shallow. Incredible. So when you talk about rootstocks, I find that very interesting. So if an apple tree is on a dwarfing rootstock, I'm assuming that those roots won't stretch out far and wide. Is that well, true? They stretch out further than a lot of people think. Um, Basically, only the guy in Hungary did the research on this, uh, and he found that dwarfing root stops tend to have less roots beyond the foliage, but not a whole lot less, but enough to make a difference. Um, so if you want to be on the safe side, you would water at the drip line of most trees, and then on dwarf trees, not go any further, on a standard root stop, you could go further. Now that brings it all together. So why are we going on about roots? Why is it so important? Because we need to know where to water. Now, you're talking about watering at the edge of the canopy. Wouldn't we want to sprinkle the water, you know, equally from the trunk out to the edge? Why would you focus on the edge of the canopy under the furthest, where the furthest, furthest branches are? Well, because that's where the new roots are. And they have the root hairs, 
and only root hairs are absorbing the water and nutrients. So if you did, like when I used to dig up trees as a landscaper, uh, because they had to be removed, uh, the first two, five, six, eight feet was bark on a mature tree because it's been there long enough that the roots outside the, the canopy are gathering the water and nutrients. And so if you don't, if you have bark on a root stock, you don't have root hairs. So um, it's important to keep that water further and further out as the tree grows. And you also talk about when you look at these illustrations, for instance, there's also an illustration of a walnut tree and you see how deep these roots go. How deep does the water need to go when we are irrigating our trees? Well, that's interesting that most fruit trees have a tremendous amount of their roots in the top foot. Uh, and most of the root system, the top two feet, maybe three. So if you're watering deeper than two feet, you're wasting water. Um, and if basically, if you want to keep things happy, keep the top foot a little bit moist. We're not talking about wet. It means that you can't hardly see the difference between dry and wet. So it's sort of dry and moist because of the color change. But we're talking about keeping it a little bit moist. So there's not the stress of going through really dry area time and then a really wet time and then a really dry time. So if drip irrigation kind of equals levels that out. So the, the moist and dry times are not too extreme and the roots grow better. And how do we know that we're getting down deep enough? Like, you know, in our community orchard, sometimes we'll water a tree it's a drought, it's really dry, and we'll water, and you, you feel the top bit of soil, it feels damp, it looks okay. How do you know that that water has gone down a foot or more? You need to dig a trench. Uh, it varies considerably on the soil type, so at least the first time prior to planting a tree, you should dig a small trench and go down one to two feet and, and then put a drip irrigation emitter next to the trench and see how wide the wet spot gets down below. Because the wet spot on the surface of drip might be, say, uh, six inches wide, and down a foot, it's uh, 12, 18 inches wide. So what's misleading to people is they see a wet spot on the surface with dry and then another wet spot. The roots down a foot below are sharing all that moisture. The moisture is continuous so that you ignore what's going on the surface in the sense that you want the emitters to be spaced so that the root system down a foot or so gets continuous moisture. So on a sandy soil, that might be the rows or emitters might be every six inches. On a clay soil, it might be 24, even 36 inches. Now we're talking about if people have actually um, emitter systems and irrigation systems like that. And we will in the second half of the show describe your systems that you put in and you enjoy using. But what if somebody is watering with a hose or buckets? Do you, you know, you're dumping a bucket or, you know, under the edge of the canopy somewhere. How do you know that that's getting in? Well, that's not a problem usually. Uh, Well, oftentimes it'll be more water unless you distribute it evenly. So like, it's not a bad idea if you have uh, buckets of water to do a moat where you have a, a ring around the tree that's maybe six inches deeper than the soil around it so that you can fill that and it'll kind of make a wet moat and then it'll, it'll sink in. 
when I started growing trees in the when I lived out in the rural part of our county, I used gray water for the first two years, and I used a type of sprinkler that made lots of big droplets and no mist, and um, and I did it for one to three years, and then I pulled the water away and used it for other trees. By having the trees, what they call dry farmed, not irrigated anymore, the growth was slower, the growth was less, and the yields were slower, but I had plenty of apples. In other words, if you come home from work and you've got 50 pounds of apple lying on the ground, you're either going to be very busy canning or you're going to be very guilty because you didn't can. So that's why dwarf fruit trees and multiple grafted trees are important so that you don't always have to fixate on maximum growth for fruit on a fruit tree. So I have um, a question from Candice. Um, Candice, on my website, orchardpeople.com slash questions, people can do a little video and ask me a question, which I will sometimes turn into a video and answer, or I'll give them an answer in some way, shape or form. So Gary in the studio, let's play this clip of Candice with her fabulous question for Robert. Hello, Susan. My name is Candace, and I'm in zone 8B9A. And I have lots of fruit trees. I have figs, and I have peaches and apples. And I want to know how much I should water them and when to water them in the winter because we have a bipolar kind of winter. Like some days it's really cold, and then we'll get days like today where it's 80 degrees, but then 50 at night. And in terms of my citrus, I don't know what to do with those. Um, because we're having a good day sometimes and we're not other times. So please let me know. Yeah, good question. So watering during the winter, fluctuating temperatures. What's your feedback for Candace? Well, most trees, when they're deciduous, um, are in a kind of a little bit of a suspended animation. They will have roots absorbing water and nutrients, but it's very small percentage compared to the growing season. So I wouldn't worry about it unless you get a, a, a dry spot of a month uh, in December and dig down then your little trench and see how deep you have to go before you see moisture. Now, when I traveled in Greece, I saw fig trees growing up it looked like 100% rock. And and being in Greece, uh, it was a very similar Mediterranean climate. Uh, they never got water except the winter rains. Um, so I wouldn't want something like a fig tree as long as the root system is fairly extensive. What you would be a little bit concerned about are the evergreens like citrus. So like uh, in the wintertime here, I have citrus near the house and the eave keeps the rain off them a lot. So I water by hand on a weekly basis so that I can keep it consistently moist. Um, if it's in the ground, uh, you wouldn't have to water that often. Uh, if you get a decent amount of rain, let's say 12 inches or more a season, you probably could just get away with a very deep mulch. Well, four inches of mulch. Uh, anything beyond four inches is usually a waste of material compared to the benefit that it provides. Um, so I would say mulch your trees, use a dense mulch, not hay or straw, rather, um, unless you put the straw on a foot and a half deep and then it settles down to four inches. Um, but anyway, so that I wouldn't worry so much about the winter. Um, 
things are growing underground in the winter, but it's a very small amount of growth. Gotcha. Great, great answer. We've got an email from Helen. Thank you for writing, Helen. She writes, hello from Timmins, Ontario. Like most of your listeners, you are asking the questions that we have for you. Thanks for the information. Happy New Year to all of you. Thank you, Helen. Yes, I was wondering why the listeners are very quiet today. I guess I'm giving Robert a good grilling, so you guys aren't too concerned. (laughs) Okay. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's actually, I want to, before we go, we're going to have a few words from our sponsors, but I just wanted to read on Facebook. There was a lot of chatter uh, when I posed the question about how much do you water your fruit trees? So here's just a few little comments. Uh, Carl, this is amongst a group of people who grow lots of fruit trees. Carl says, once my trees get established, I do not water. I might reconsider if we got a drought. Jill writes, uh, she has two sites, one in Maine and one in Massachusetts. She says one has sandy soil and one has clay soil. So as we know, You know, there's different retention, water retention in each of those. Here's what Jill writes. From an East Coast point of view, we water with five gallons at planting and rarely after this. If we have a deep drought, we water once a week with five gallons of water slowly and deeply. So the roots go deep. We only use water hungry dwarfing rootstocks in naturally wet areas. Mulching is the solution to watering for us. And then I'm going to read one more and we can discuss all of them. Uh, So Roberta from Manitoba says, I have heavy clay soil. It's usually fairly humid in the summers, but in the last few years, we have been experiencing a record setting drought not seen since the 1920s. So we mulch and she says, I grow full size rootstocks and only water if we don't get an inch or two of water for two weeks or more. So what I liked about some of those comments is it brings home this idea that different rootstocks, if it's a full-size tree with a full-size rootstock, it might be able to get more moisture out of the existing soil than maybe uh, a a smaller dwarf uh, fruit tree. What do you think about that, Robert? Yes, it's possible because the standard fruit tree of the massive root system has a whole lot more root hairs in, in the soil. So it's ex- exploring a, a cubic volume of soil that's considerably greater than the dwarf tree. Uh, but it, you have to get very dwarf to be concerned, usually like a M9, M27. Um, but come M101 or M101 on an apple, it's not so critical. Uh, the root system is massive enough to do a lot of uh, dry farming in the sense that if you get periodic rains, you never water and let the rains take care of it. In my area, like I say, I can in a good soil, I can go without watering fruit trees if I get them established for a year or two. But like I say, the growth is is less, the roots are not as massive, and your yields will go down. But as I say, that doesn't matter a lot of times. So you got plenty of fruit. Gotcha. Okay. And one more comment here. This is Brian from Finger Lakes region of New York. He's zone 6B. He says, I'm a small scale urban gardener. I have silty sand soil. Deep mulch will hold in moisture, but I added drip irrigation a couple of years ago. 
and noticed a big improvement in growth. Yes. And that's the advantage. It, the best research is done with vegetables. Like I mentioned, that woman using 38% less water, but 48% more chilies. The same thing can happen with fruit trees, but there's less data on the subject. But it's it's been done with almonds out here in California. And it's been done with uh, pomegranates and, and citrus. And you'll find that like vegetables, periodic frequent irrigation will produce the most amount of produce or fruit. Gotcha. All right. Well, let's, let's take a minute. Um, After the break, I want to talk about the best way to ensure that your fruit tree gets the water that it needs. So we'll talk about that in the next part of the show. But first, let's take a few minutes and hear some words from our sponsors. So, Robert, you okay waiting on the line for a minute? You bet. Yeah, I'm here. Okay, great. You are listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show and Podcast brought to you by the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. This is Reality Radio 101, and I'm Susan Poisner, author of the Fruit Tree Care book, Growing Urban Orchards. And we'll be back right after the break. Did you know that Susan Poisoner of OrchardPeople.com teaches fruit tree care courses online? Here's a testimonial from Roger, a student from Howe Island, Ontario. Some years ago I retired and I wanted to have some fruit trees, so I did the usual. I went to the big box stores and, and bought what they had and I planted them and I had some successes but more failures. In fact, I was almost ready to give up when I discovered Susan's online course. It taught me a lot of what I thought I knew but didn't know. It's in uh, bite-sized pieces that you can easily understand, and you can review the course whenever you want. Last year I had such success that this year I had to do very little in terms of pest management, either with insects or with disease. If you want to grow organic fruit trees, join Susan for a workshop at orchardpeople.com workshops. For 10% off tuition, use the discount code PODCAST. If you're listening to this show, you are passionate about fruit trees. But do you care how your trees are grown? Silver Creek Nursery is a family-owned business, and we grow our fruit trees sustainably using only organic inputs. We stock a huge range of cultivars, like Wolf River, an apple tree that produces fruit so large you can make an entire pie with just one apple. We also carry red-fleshed apples, like Pink Pearl, as well as heirloom and disease-resistant varieties of apples, pears, apricots, cherries, and more. We ship our trees across Canada, and we can also supply you with berry canes and edible companion plants to plant near your trees. At Silver Creek Nursery, we grow fruit trees for a sustainable food future. Learn more about us at silvercreeknursery.ca. If you're thinking of planting fruit trees and you're looking for a wide selection of cultivars, consider Wiffle Tree Nursery. Our 62-page full-color catalog includes over 300 varieties of fruit and nut trees, berries, grapes, and other edible perennial plants. 
Not only that, in our catalog, we help you through the selection process with tips and advice about all aspects of growing fruit trees. You can learn about adding nitrogen-fixing plants, rootstock choices, and even about planting a windbreak if you have a windy site. We're a one-stop shop as we sell fruit tree care books, pruning tools, organic sprays, and natural fertilizers. We're located in Alora, Ontario, but we can ship all over Canada. Call us at 519-669-1349 to order your catalog. That's 519-669-1349. Whiffle Tree Nursery. Call us today. Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. To get on board right now, send us an email. Our email address is instudio101 at gmail.com. And now, right back to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. You are listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show and podcast brought to you by the Fruit Tree Care training website, orchardpeople.com. This is Reality Radio 101, and I'm your host, Susan Poisner, author of the Fruit Tree Care book, Growing Urban Orchards. In the show today, we've been talking about fruit trees and irrigation. Uh, We talked about how fruit trees take in water as well as nutrients through their root systems. And we learned how correct irrigation can improve harvest quality. But now the real question is, how do you irrigate your tree correctly? And that's what we are going to talk about next with today's guest, Robert Couric, who is the author of a wonderful book called Roots Demystified, Changing Your Gardening Habits to Improve Soil to help roots thrive, and who has also written a number of other sustainable gardening books. But before we continue the show, I want to hear from you. So send us an email right now during the live show and ask a question or send in a comment or just say hello, and we will enter you into today's contest. And the prize is the prize is PDF copies of a number of Robert's books, including Roots Demystified and Greater Garden Yields with Drip Irrigation. And the total value of these PDFs is $20. So enter the contest right now by emailing us at instudio101 at gmail.com. And be sure to include your first name and where you're writing from. So that's instudio101 at gmail.com. And we look forward to hearing from you. So, Robert, back to our conversation. Do you have some main strategies to keep in mind when you are watering fruit trees? Yes. Now, something somebody earlier mentioned one or two inches of rain. Well, when you put in a drip system, the emitters that let the water out in a controlled way are measured in gallons per hour. So what is one inch of rain equal to gallons per hour can't be done. Nobody can do the math. So the reason we use the evapotranspiration rate and the reason we use my book 
is that I have the chart, the only chart I know of that converts ET rate irrigation to gallons per square foot, uh, not inches of rain. So like in our area, come uh, August, third, July, we have what's called 10 inches per month of ET rate. That converts into over uh, 24 inch, 24 gallons of water per hundred square feet. So you take your garden, hundred square feet, multiply it by whatever the size of your garden is, multiply that by the number of emitters, and then you can turn, figure out how long to leave the system on based on your gallons per hour per emitter. Um, so the only accurate way to really nail down the amount of water is to the use of apotranspiration charts. Um, and uh, those are usually found more and more now with the master gardeners, at least in our area. Uh, the county uh, co-op uh, extension service has the numbers as well. So it's pretty easy to, to get it where I live. Um, but in other words, uh, I'm going to be talking in Seattle, uh, and in the summer, it never gets above seven inches per month, whereas in Santa Rosa, it'll get up, get up to nine and a half gallons, uh, I mean, nine and a half inches per month. So basically, uh, Seattle uses about 50% less water than where I live. That's very interesting. Very Is that something that you could have predicted? No, I mean, I would know it was less because yeah. the climate's so mild compared to the drought we have down here. But I wouldn't know specifically that it's 50% unless I had the ET charts. Um, we have a couple of emails here. One is from Gilles. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing your name. Please forgive me. Um, hi, Susan. Season's greeting to you and your guest. I love this question coming up. This is a good one. I've bought these drip irrigation bags that wrap around the trunk of the tree. So those tree gator bags. Right. You fill up the bag with water and it slowly drips into the ground. Should I be using these bags since, that they, are, since they are so close to the trunk? I live in Cornwall, Ontario, zone 5A, thanks. Oh my gosh, thank you for asking this question. That's good, yeah. The, those bags are in our area used to get the tree going. In other words, one to two years at the most. Uh, oftentimes just one season so that you can deal with the stress of planting a, a tree. I do not recommend them beyond that because just what you said, they can cause root rot by putting the water only on the crown of the root system. So I don't use those things, uh, period. But if I were to use them, I would use them one season at the most. Just on the baby trees, because when you even plant a bare root tree, their roots are kind of small. You can see where the roots are when you put them in the ground. So you know you're getting the outer edge of the canopy because it's a small, tiny tree. What a great right. question. Thank you for asking that. We have another question here from David. Hello, this has been a great show. I'm growing apple and cherry trees, espalier style, against my house due to limited space. Is there anything different I need to consider when planning my drip irrigation system? So Dave is from Med, uh, Medford, Massachusetts. Well, I had a, a research plot of uh, 20 Asian pears planted on what's called oblique cordon, 45, the whole trees planted at 45 degrees. 
and I was experimenting with how much I could prune it uh, and different styles of pruning to see what the yields would be. Well, what I did with my drip system on, on each side of the tree, I put a straight line of drip the whole length of the row at the drip line. Um, I could have put more beyond the drip line rows like uh, a foot apart or two feet apart, but the well where I was doing this wasn't great. So I wanted to keep the water from use of the well to a minimum, but basically I used inline emitter tubing that has emitter built in every foot. And I put it at the drip line of the espalier. Perfect. So right at the drip line. So again, you're keeping that in mind. Now he has a house behind his tree. So that's going to limit where the, right. much the roots can stretch out too. So, um, okay, let's dive into irrigation systems. Before we go into drip irrigation, there is an option of soap, soaker hoses. Do you have any strong feelings about soaker hoses using them on fruit trees? I hate soaker hoses. <laughs> I don't think they should be sold. But basically, there's two things wrong with soaker hoses. One, you can't go very far away from the faucet till you have much less water coming out. And even with chlorinated city water, they because the water sits in there between irrigations, it can develop uh, um, algae bloom. And it starts to seal off all those micro pores on the... Uh, on the tubing so that in our area, uh, micro, I mean, uh, soaker hose might be useless after three, five years. Um, but the main thing is like, if you take uh, inline emitter tubing with an emitter, every 12 inches built into it and roll it out from the faucet, you can go 275 feet and have exactly the same amount of water coming out at the end as the beginning. You can't do that with, soaker hose, maybe 10 feet. Um, there's a chart in the back of my drip irrigation book that shows the length of different types of tubing and emitters uh, from the faucet uh, so that I don't have that in front of me, but basically it has soaker hose and it's like 10 feet, 12 feet, 15 feet. With drip irrigation, it could be 100, 200, 300 feet, uh, depending on what you're using. So you get a... With, the advantage of that is you have a whole lot less faucets or valves than if you have a soaker hose. In other words, um, if a soaker hose goes every 100 feet at max, uh, and even though it'll be less water at the end, you would have one faucet, one filter, one controller, one pressure regulator, and... Um, if you had to do that for every hundred feet, it really adds up compared to every two or 300 feet. Wow. Great. Okay. We got an email here from Jane. Jane says, and my feelings exactly. Wow. Such great information today. Does your guest have a book out? Oh, I live in Queens NYC. Happy new year. So just take a moment and tell us just where people will find, because people listening to the show are going to want to buy your book if they don't win it in the contest. So what, where can they go on the internet to buy your books? My website. Uh, and technically, in most cases, my books are cheaper on my website than Amazon. So you can save a lot of money by buying from me directly. Uh, so basically, I have four or five books available in paper and three or four books available as PDFs. I've written uh, 19 books, 
but a lot of them are out of print um, because they were done so long ago. But my two uh, roots books are still for sale. My drip irrigation book is for sale. And my newest book, uh, Sustainable Food Gardens, just came out in October. And it's uh, available through my website. So and that, the website, you, yeah. yeah, the website <laughs> is robertcorick.com, my name with no space. But Corick is spelled K-O-U-R-I-K. So robertcorick.com. Are you Google uh, drip irrigation in every landscape or you Google food, uh, uh, sustainable food gardens and you'll get my name. Perfect. Okay. We got a little bit of time left. I want to talk about drip irrigation systems. How much money will I have to pay and how do I set them up? I know this is just throwing a whole bunch at you now, but give us an <laughs> idea of what we have to consider uh, when you are setting up your own system. Well, if you're going to build a system off of an existing hose bib or faucet, um, you start with uh, some gizmos to convert um, hose thread from the faucet to iron pipe thread. A lot of the hardware after that has tight little pipe threads, whereas the hose threads are further apart and you can't use them interchangeably. So you convert it from one to the other. But then the next thing you go to is a filter because even in city water, you want to make sure the drip system doesn't clog due to stuff in the water. And um, being uh, like a half gallon per hour emitter, the opening's quite small. So you can't afford to have too much stuff get past the beginning of the system and then after that comes what's called a pressure regulator drip systems can't take city pressure the household city water pressure is anywhere from 60 to 90 pounds per square inch drip systems like to be below 45 i like to keep them at 35 or 25 PSI pounds per square inch so that the fittings don't blow apart and the emitters don't pop out. Um, so you put a pressure regulator um, after the filter and then you go to the drip system. Um, there is an e a YouTube I did that talks about the best pressure regulator because most of them are really cheap, meaning lousy plastic, they crack very easy. The one that I like to use is called Sininger. And in the video, see, we drove a truck over it and it didn't break. So that over 110,000 people looked at me having a truck go over this regulator <laughs> and not break. Well, that's the one to buy. Sounds good. Okay, a couple of quick questions. Uh, let's see. This one's from Karen. Karen writes, water cannons. I drive by these fruit farms and see these massive water cannons spraying a field. Does that really work? Or are these farmers just wasting precious water? Happy New Year from Waterloo, Ontario. They're wasting water. I mean, you, you lose a tremendous amount of evaporation before it even hits the ground. Um, and they have, if you fly over a plane in Colorado and what have you, you see these big green circles. And those are what she might be calling the water cannons. They have a pivot in the middle and a long bar, and it just constantly moves around the circle with a small amount of spray water. Um, but 
it still loses a lot of water to evaporation and they're basically using the aquifer to supply the water for it and so the aquifer starts going down you get subsidence and less and less water uh over time so it's tremendously wasteful Hmm. an email here from who's this from monica Uh, monica writes happy watering happy new year that's all from prince albert saskatchewan (laughs) (laughs) i love that so, okay, so you set up this system. I want to talk about the placement of the emitters um, because a fruit tree has roots that go out in all different directions. So if you just sort of, you know, place your drip system on one side of the fruit tree, then all the roots on the other side, won't they just die because they don't, they don't get water? What is your solution to that? Well, I usually do parallel. In other words, uh you, if you have a, a long row of tubing, I do it on each side of the trunk near the drip line. If it's a very big tree isolated from other trees, I do a spiral. So I start out with solid drip hose coming into within a couple feet of the trunk. Then I convert it to drip irrigation hose and make a spiral that goes out to and maybe beyond the drip line of the tree. And you leave a end cap on the hose line so you can take that end cap off and add more hose as it's bigger uh so uh like some like a massive pine tree that can get 40 50 feet in diameter you need to have the ability to add more length to the tubing as the tree gets uh bigger and um how how do you know how uh, far apart the emitters need to be is that dependent on Soil type or, or how, what, yes. is there a yes. standard? Mm-hmm. No, no. Well, uh, if you buy the pre-installed emitters that are every 12 inches, um, you can use it on, on a sandy soil because they're closer together, but you can use it also on clay and run it less time. So on sandy soil, you run it longer. On clay soil, you run it less. It's much better to dig a trench get a sample like a hundred foot roll of tubing, lay it out, dig a trench and see what the wet spots are and how wide they get. Because if you have a a heavy duty clay soil, you can leave it on a a fairly longer amount of time, but it'll spread the roots, the wet wet spot at the roots will spread 12, 36 inches apart. So when you buy tubing, that's every emitter is built in every three feet. It's literally the cost of buying tubing that's every foot. Now, I buy tubing at every foot because it gives me the most flexibility for my clients. But for my own garden, I dug, I put the tubing down, ran it for an hour, dug a trench, ran it for another hour, dug a trench. So I knew that after one hour, it got this wide. After two hours, it got that wide. I got a feeling for exactly how long to leave the system on to get continuous moisture six, eight, ten inches down. Okay, I want to clarify these trenches. So yes. I'm imagining that the the line is above the ground. It's on the ground and your trench is beside where you're putting uh, yeah. your drip system. So you're getting a sort of a slice of soil so you can see how wide the, like maybe a triangle or something at well, the top. It's a bubble. Is where the, I mean, it's more it's a like a balloon, yeah. Right. Uh, uh, hmm. And so that, 
you can see the color change if you do it if you've done it after a rain you know it's useless but if you do it after this enough interval between rains or in our area any time in the summer you'll see a color change between the drier soil and the moisture soil from the drip irrigation uh, emitter. Okay, lovely. Um, And now I want to talk about the difference between the different types of emitters. There is something called an inline emitter, and there's something called an external emitter. What's the difference? Well, in the old days, we only had the external emitters where you punched a hole in the tubing and you inserted a barbed fitting with the emitter sitting on top of the hose, the drip hose. Now we have a system where the emitter is built inside the hose with an opening at the, at the hose, but the emitter itself doesn't stick out of the hose. The advantage is nothing off. Uh, usually in our gardens, uh, people are down on their knees every spring trying to find the emitters that popped off or broke off or got stepped on and cracked off. Um, so they're spending a few hours every spring trying to find the mistakes or bro- broken stuff. Um, whereas inline emitter tubing, it's sturdy enough. You can walk all over it, drive a wheelbarrow over it. Uh, it'll take an enormous amount of, of pressure and the hose still stays gather- together, doesn't split. And then the emitter's built in so that it doesn't get the direct pressure of the wheelbarrow, let's say. Um, and then you can have inline emitter tubing where the emitter is... 12, uh, half a gallon per hour or one gallon per hour or even two gallons per hour, but that's pretty rare. Most systems, uh, I buy half a gallon hour emitters to have for my clients, which means they may have to run it less time. Uh, if you buy emitters every tw- 24 inches, you have to run it longer. So every 24 inches doesn't do a good job on a, on a sandy soil or a really light loam. Uh, you need one inch, I mean, one foot intervals to do that. Um, and what's fascinating is people say, oh, I'm, if I buy a drip hose and I punch in all these emitters, it's going to be cheaper than buying this tubing that's new and what have you. Well, I did a, a study at my local supplier and basically punching in every emitter and taking all the time to do that, the cost is 20 to 30% more than buying the inline emitter tubing. And with the inline emitter tubing, all you do is roll it out, flush it, cap it, you're done. Whereas with all the others, you got to get down on your knees and punch all these holes and put all these emitters in. It takes hours. I had a client who wanted to save money. (laughs) So they had me put out the, this is back in the old days before we had inline. So I put out the rows of tubing every two feet on her slope. And they came out the next weekend and punched in all the emitters. And then they went for three weeks to physical therapy because their wrists got ruined. As a (laughs) landscaper, my wrists were up to snuff on being able to do that. But theirs weren't. So it cost them much more than if I had done it. So finally, once you set up your system, should you be digging it into the soil? Should you be covering it with mulch or should you leave it exposed? You can, uh, you don't dig it in the soil. Uh, I don't know if you have gophers. We have gophers that eat the tubing if it's buried in the soil. Uh, but there's, you don't need to have the effort of doing that. You put it on the soil surface 
And then if you don't want to see it, you mulch it. Or if you want to get better use of the water, you mulch it. The tubing is rated by the manufacturer at 10 years in full sun without breaking or splitting. If you put, I, a friend of mine, we had a, a garlic farm uh, for 20 years and we put in the tubing and it was still intact 20 years later. And we used straw mulch. And with inline emitter tubing, there were no clogged emitters. Amazing. So is there a certain brand people should be looking for that you like? Well, the like for the pressure regulator, you really got to see if you can find the Sinninger uh, pressure regulator. Uh, as far as filters, I like one that's called, uh, oh boy, uh, Arc... I can, it starts with A-R-K, sorry, <laughs> I forgot it, but you don't, you don't, uh, you talk to your supplier because some of these things, they split apart after a few years. Um, and then you, in our area, the best mail order source country is called Dripworks, one, one name, Dripworks. I don't know if they can ship into Canada or not. I know they don't have a office or store in Canada. But in America, that's the best source for mail order if you don't have a local supplier. Fantastic. I got to say, this has been so much fun talking to you. I love the fact that you you have taken, I mean, there's so much that you know about all sorts of edible gardening, but that you've taken so much time to delve so deep into irrigation. It's just a wonderful education for me. So it's time to find out who won the contest. And Gary, are you there? I am here. And what we're going to do is, Robert, I'm going to shake. I put all the names in a little plastic container, and I'm going to shake that container that you'll hear on the air, and you tell me when to stop, and I'll pull a name out. Is that fair? Sounds good. Okay, here we go. Stand by. Stop. Okay, and let's see who the lucky winter is. David B. from Medford, Massachusetts. Yay, David. He can buy from (laughs) Drickworks. Yay, fantastic. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so, David, we're going to be sending you an email and uh, linking you up with Robert. He will send you your prize. And these books are wonderful. PDF copies are great. My copy is PDF. um, And I learned a lot from it. So I would highly recommend people check out Robert's website, which is again, Robert, Robert you want to, mm-hmm. is K-O-U-R-I-K, Robert Corrick. Robert Corrick.com. So now water, of course, is just one piece of the puzzle. And I'm so excited because I just launched my new online course on unlocking soil potential. And I have spent the last year learning about soil and delving into it, at first getting very confused and stressed by the science, and then figuring it out. And so if anybody is interested in that, you can go to orchardpeople.com workshops and check out my new course. I am super excited about it. And I can't wait to hear your feedback, folks, for those of you who sign up. So that's it for today's show. Oh my goodness, we have one minute left. That's all. If you enjoyed the show and let's say you're listening to it on iTunes, then I would love it if you could rate and review the show. That would be very helpful. 
Or if you're on a different podcatcher, maybe there's a way to do that. So please do rate and review the show if you enjoyed it. You can also follow me on Facebook on the Orchard People Facebook page. So that's all for today. We have another show coming up, my goodness, next month, which is also next year. And um, I look forward to seeing you all back again next month with another fantastic guest. And Robert, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been wonderful to chat. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Okay, you're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, and we'll see you next month. You've been listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. To learn more about the show and to download the podcast where I cover lots more great topics, you can visit orchardpeople.com slash podcast. The show is broadcast live on the last Tuesday of every month. And each time I have great new guests talking to me about fruit trees, food forests, and arboriculture. If you're interested in learning more about growing your own fruit trees or just about living a more sustainable life, go to orchardpeople.com and sign up for my information-packed monthly newsletter. If you like this show, please do like our Orchard People Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter at at Urban Fruit Trees. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's been wonderful to have you as a listener, and I hope to see you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101.